Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. My name is Alice Diver from School of Law at Queen's and this episode is to mark an event that is occurring this week at Queen's. It is to do with origin deprivation, the loss of genetic identity. So it's relevant to adoptees. We have a room full of adoptees now who are visiting us. They're all here very kindly to do papers over the course of the next two days. I will go around the table and let everyone introduce themselves. So very welcome, Tobias. We'll start with you. Yeah. So my name is Tobias Hübenet and I come from Sweden. I am an adoptee from South Korea uh, and I have a PhD in Korean studies as well. And I've been researching adoption and adoption related matters for yeah ever since my yeah I took my PhD basically that was uh, almost 20 years ago. And I come back to this field of adoption studies regularly basically although I don't see myself as a adoption research proper uh, and I've been very much involved in trying to create a critical adoption studies field as well as a, a kind of a subfield of Korean adoption studies uh, so that would be I think my presentation yeah my name is Ryan Gustafsson I am also a Korean adoptee I'm based in Melbourne Australia I'm also part of the Korean Adoptee Adoption Research Network, or CARN, um, that I run with Nikolai Peterson and Bunyang Han. I'm also in a few other, I suppose, adoptee kind of community slash advocacy groups. Um, and the research that I have been doing probably for the last five or so years is really looking at Korean adoptee experiences from a kind of phenomenological perspective. My PhD was in um, the philosophy of Merleau-Ponty. So I kind of use his philosophy as a kind of conceptual framework through which to better understand some of the salient experiential dimensions of Korean adoptee experiences. Um, and the focus of the paper that I'll be giving this week is, it's, it's somewhat experimental actually, it's looking at the figure and the motif of the ghost and haunting in adoptee narratives as a way of kind of getting at the affective and embodied ways in which um, adoptees experience and inhabit their worlds. And I'm Nikolai Jiangli Linding Peterson. Like Tobias and Ryan, I'm a Korean adoptee. I grew up in Denmark, but I've been studying and living abroad uh, for more than 20 years. My background is in philosophy, uh, like Ryan, um, although I, I do what's called, I guess, analytic uh, philosophy. Um, and most of my work has been in philosophy so far. Um, I haven't actually really done any work on uh, adoption. So this event will be the first time that I give a presentation, a research presentation on, uh, on adoption, uh, which will be a kind of attempt to, to bring together some of the tools and some of the frameworks I've been using um, in my work in, uh, on philosophy, some decision theory, uh, 
you know, a framework for thinking about rational decision making and some concepts from, uh, I guess, recent concepts from from philosophy, um, in particular, this idea of what's called transformative experience, a kind of experience that can change who people are. Um, and I'm going to try to connect that with um, some research in, in, in psychology uh, on, on the link between um, uncertainty and emotional and, and mental well-being. And like Ryan, I'm involved with uh, the Korean Adoptee Adoption Research Network. We've been running that for a couple of years. Just how we met. Yes. Yes, indeed. because yeah, we're, um, we're everywhere. I think basically adoptees, though maybe we're on, not always obvious to to people. So hopefully this this event might might raise a little bit of awareness as to why we think a right to origin and what it means and how far that could reach the right to identity. Do we get a little bit forgotten about? Are we seen as private rather than public? You know, if we haven't come out of a political upheaval, if you know, I'm looking at Ukraine at the moment which is focusing people's attention on, oh, separating families, statelessness, giving people a, a new identity. People are quite horrified by that. And then when you say to them, now, is it about adoption or is it about the statelessness or which aspect of it is making you, um, making you annoyed? So I guess first question that I'll sort of throw out there, and I know there's no easy answer, but should there be a right to genetic identity. We know there is, in theory, a right to identity. But when it gets into genetics and donor children will tell you, donor conceived people will say the same. Surrogacy is contentious. Tobias, I'll start. I'll pick on you first. Yeah, well, uh, for me, it's obvious that uh, there should be uh, such a right because although the vast majority of all people in the world know about uh, genetic origins, some of us don't, right? Because, and, and I don't just mean adoptees, there are also other categories of, of people or children that might not know. Uh, you mentioned some of them, but there are also others who have been orphaned, right, in various ways and who might have not ended up as adoptees, but as something else, foster children and so. So I think so. Uh, and uh, the reason why there is none is probably because it, uh, yeah, the vast majority of people know about their genetic origins. I think it's very something they take for granted. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's like people who can sing, they don't realize that there are those among them who really can't and shouldn't, and that's what me myself. But yeah, it is very much something. And families, people do just take it for granted if you have siblings. Why why would you be interested in I get that a lot. Why are you interested in in finding other family and connecting? But I guess unless they they walk in the shoes. They might not. They might not get it. Nikolai, going back, back to you. What do you think? Right to identity. Are we asking too much? I have been called ungrateful in the past by people who say, "Oh, you want to ride over the privacy rights of others." Gets my hackles up, but maybe you know. Ryan. Well, I always think it's tricky when you have um, rights are generally good, but yeah, the 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 issue I should say is when when they conflict and. Um, which direction the trumping should go, um, and like to have a, a kind of hierarchy of rights. And as soon as you start imposing that hierarchy and there are conflicting rights, you also kind of, in some sense, impose a hierarchy on people, I think. 
because that's what gives the trumping, right? That there are some people who takes priority over over others. It's it can be difficult not to look at it maybe that way, right? Um, and that by itself is a sort of maybe a difficult sort of idea to wrap your head around if you think about what rights are for in the first place. Um, um, I have to say, I'm. It's something I think is a very you know it's a very tricky issue, um, but you can certainly, you know, see, you know, typically the, the people who, you know, seek to claim the right, you can tell that there, there are good reasons why they do it, right? It has a real impact on often, like in many cases, their, their, their well-being in different ways, right? Um, and the question is, and sometimes actually, I think it's case by case, but sometimes if if the other party relinquishes their right, if it would actually, I mean, it's difficult to quantify and sort of like say how much, like how can we balance these things against each other? But but I think there are cases where, you know, if people give up on their privacy right, maybe overall it's better, uh, right? But but again, I'm a bit reluctant to to sort of um, make general statements. To be honest, it's very wise. But because I yeah. think there are a lot of specifics to cases. Right. Um, so I'm I'm afraid I have to sort of disappoint you in terms of just saying outright yes or outright no. Um, so we don't start the revolution today. Um, <laughs> also, partly as a philosopher, I'm a bit undecisive often when I have to make up my mind about questions. Uh, I sort of often look at arguments for and against, and then I try to withdraw myself from the discussion, and then other people can look at their arguments. That's why I yeah. opted for you as... Philosophy. I thought philosophy. We'll just, I will just, you know, land you in, in this one now and, and ask. Yeah. Um, and Ryan, what do you think? Um, I think, yes, I think we should have a right to identity for sure. Um, and I think some of the, I mean, I'd ask for a bit more than that as well. I would ask that, I would say that because some of the work that I've been looking at is in like migration studies, right? Looking at adoption as a form of migration that is disavowed as a type of migration. And I would argue that we also have a right to our collective histories um, beyond any individual right to an individual tracing of family lineage that, that adoption happened and is happening to people who may not view themselves as a group, but which have I think some shared investments and shared concerns, um, whether or not, you know, obviously within the adoptee community, there's just all sorts of tensions and stuff. But um, I think for me, it feels important that in the work that I'm doing, I push for one, a collective understanding and therefore two, that we have a right to to institutions and governments letting us understand and giving us information that helps us better grasp this phenomenon of which we are a part. I think, I guess, the practical redress aspect, you know, open the records, give us, you know, the, the proper truths, stop telling us that there have been these fires where all records were lost, you know, the, that we were discussing earlier, maybe the lifting of the vetoes. Now, I know that then ste you know, steps on the rights of um, mothers who want to remain anonymous, but however, 
Just imagine. And, and also the rights of property, because the agencies are in many countries. In some countries, the, the, the states themselves have conducted the adoptions, right? Like I think in the UK, for example. But in, in other countries, uh, the agencies are also uh, private running and private owned uh, entities, which means that the documents are owned by, by them. Uh, so there are many um, issues, of course, uh, when it comes to how to, if, if, if all the records would, would get open, there are conflicting uh, principles, basically. Uh, and that's the reason why it, it's not happening. And yet for the, I don't want to say the kept, because that sounds like maybe a, a memoir or, you know, something, but for people who don't have the adoption experience, it's no great thing for them. They have the birth certificate, generally. Um, and yet for us, it's very much a case of, no, you can't, you can't have that. Are we not to be trusted? Or is it because of the, the rights balancing? Um, I wanted to talk ghosts a little, if that, and fear, if that's okay. Because I, just, we, I know we have some common themes. Um, I'm, I'm, we'll be looking at fairy tales and folklore and superstition. Um, and I know there's the hereditary ghosts, pathways, you know, different ways that could have been taken. Is it, do you think we scare people? I, personally, I do try to, but is it because there's this fear of us that the, we're unknown? Are we hell bent on revenge? Not usually. What do we want? Are we looking for an inheritance that is not meant to be ours? Or what? Why does it mean? I know my own birth mother, apologies for using the term, I'll call her the mothership. Um, you know, she's happy with either. She was terrified until you know, it took three attempts and I was 50 before she, you know, we, we wore her down. Now things are okay. Why, why this fear? Is it shame? Is it stigma? Who wants to take stigma and shame? And, and anyone first? So I think uh, in, in Western Christian culture, right? And like in, in other, uh, like in other cultures or even civilizations, there is uh, traditionally this strong focus on bloodlines, right? And it, it starts from the, I mean, in the old days, the aristocracy and the princely houses of Europe and so on, and it, um, it and down to like ordinary people, right? And people uh, who have been orphaned and people who have been adopted, they are basically the exceptions uh, because the bloodline has been broken in some way or another. And that's, I think, the main reason why you find in the old tales and the, like classical literature of Europe, if we are focusing on on Christian um, European uh, culture, uh, the the adoptee is always singled out, right? And and or the orphaned person, uh, whether it's in fiction or in reality, whether in, in old court proceeding uh, archives, for example, you find this uh, the adoptees turning up all all the time, right? And and um, so that's I think the the reason why you have this stigmatizing image of of the idea of bad blood, for example, the idea of uh, the adoptee almost being like uh, uh, yeah a ghost from the past, uh, uh, a potential monster, uh, or uh, all these other kinds of uh, synonyms, right? Um, and and that's the reason why I think the adoptee has. Uh, returned in popular culture in, in like uh, from the last century and onwards and uh, when it comes to uh, the idea of superheroes for example and and all the other weird characters that we find in in popular culture right uh, so and and ordinary i mean real adoptees like us in this case 
of course that these uh, uh, almost uh, I don't know what archaic images of, of adoptees that exist in in Christian Western culture of course they people have them in their heads right and in their minds uh, uh, and uh, usually unconsciously right so of course that that's what people pro- project on us uh, and that's so that I think that's that's natural uh, uh, although uh, can be kind of tiresome of course sometimes very much so well, I, quite, I quite like being painted as a superhero uh, sometimes we're the flawed one. We get to be Loki, I think, don't we? We get the they they you know put things like that into the into the movies. Um, you know we've got the Harry Potter. I suppose he's ex- acceptable. Jane Eyre. Everywhere we're everywhere. Um, but yeah, the the fear one is is a hard one to shake. So we're 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 a mixed we're we're a mixed bag. Um, I'm thinking about trying to get redress, trying to get apologies. The UK is digging in its heels. Um, over making a formal apology, saying no, it won't apologize to mothers and babies. Other jurisdictions have had apologies, but are struggling with making redress, reparation, either with opening records or compensating people. Um, does anyone have thoughts on that? How, with, short of overturning cars and starting a revolution, is there any way we can, you know, possibly bring? Are we going? Are the lawyers going about the right way to get reform? With the gradual, or is there any a, a wish list or anything? What would what would if we were superheroes? What could we perhaps do to change the attitudes? What do you think? I'll throw that open. The deep question for a Monday afternoon. I, I realize. Well, I guess, I guess one thing that comes to mind as the last thing to be said was about projection, and I think that that is true. That I think adoptees are have historically been this kind of screen, right, on which to project all sorts of anxieties, whether they be national, racial, familial, whatever. And I think I think that also means that part of part of what needs to happen is a broader cultural shift. Um, and I don't know necessarily if that is educating the public on better understanding like our experiences because I feel like adoptees have done that for a long time and I'm really not sure I mean maybe things I I shouldn't say that I think things are shifting they're just shifting very slowly um but I think it would have to be a much larger shift in narrative um alongside all those other like legal mechanisms and um other forms, I guess, of of activism to to make a change because I think, yeah, that due to that projection, there are a lot of perhaps uninterrogated investments that people have in maintaining a certain idea of what an adoptee is like and what adoption is for and who adoption serves. And I think it's just also, you know, complicated. And um, as long as we continue to have these these characters in the media that just perpetuate a very abstract and idealized, you know, form of, of adoption, then yeah, there's just a lot, a lot to kind of combat, I guess. There is, I think the, the gratitude maybe aspect, there's that, there's the be quiet, don't rock the boat. Yeah, we have a, a lot of that to, to contend with, I guess. Um, so is law best placed? I've had this debate with people in the past. I know law tries its best. 
often runs behind what is happening elsewhere. Maybe literature, humanities, popular culture, is that maybe the place to change attitudes if law isn't quite hitting, hitting the mark? Well, maybe it's not, you shouldn't sort of take a sort of exclusivist um, stance on this issue. Maybe it's more that all areas have to work together and that's a kind of holistic exercise, um, working along several dimensions where they kind of complement each other. So, of course, it's true that I think you know, law is sort of holds a certain place, a central place in the sense that often sort of in a very concrete way, if something is going to happen, you have to have the legal framework in place for it to happen. But there are also things like conceptualizing, understanding what's going on, uh, where that guides, you know, also the law. Sometimes, you know, people in the humanities or from other disciplines come up with conceptual frameworks to understand the situation and give people a way to look at it. So maybe, you know, their thinking moves forward. So I think the I think it's really sort of a big holistic exercise in getting a lot of people from diverse fields to work together um, and coordinate. Uh, I think one example um, of the power of legal recognition and what the law can provide, not just legally but broadly, is, for example, in the last week, a Korean court has found that the adoption agency Holt is to be held responsible for fabricating the orphanhood of a Korean adoptee who was later deported and it's a very high high profile, I guess, highly publicized case. But um, from my understanding, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, right, this is the first time that a Korean agency has been held responsible for something that we know has impacted almost all Korean adoptees, because we were all made orphans on paper in order to be adopted. Um, And the fact that the Korean law has now recognized that that was wrong for Holt to do, I think, you know, obviously is going to lead to a whole bunch of other legal proceedings. But I think even just that will, if communicated, you know, widely and in a way that you know, can make sense and also be mindful. Like, I think a lot of adoptees don't think about their adoptions in this way. And that's also going to be quite triggering, I think, right, for them to to understand that this was actually an illegal practice. Um, but I think this is an example of, of uh, a, a legal case which will have rippling impacts and which may be the first time a lot of adoptees will look at their files and look at their histories in a slightly different light. Um, and so I think, yeah, this is just one case, I guess, among many of, um, of an opportunity, a broader societal opportunity that, that a legal case will provide. Um, yeah, well, inspiration for other jurisdictions who mm-hmm. can look across and say, this needs to happen. This has needed to happen for a long time. Uh, so another example, which is a good one, uh, where law can make a difference is uh, uh, what happened after the release of the Dutch government investigation on illicit practices within the Dutch uh, or among the Dutch adoption agencies. And this concerns international adoption, transnational adoption. So what happened was that um, uh, uh, the, the Dutch government decided that uh, 
cases, uh, individual cases where adoptees know that their adoptions did not, uh, yeah, work uh, in a in a good manner. Basically, uh, they uh, were allowed. They are allowed to file file a complaint to the police. Um, and I think legally, it's about. I think it's trafficking actually. And uh, uh, usually, in most countries in the world, there is a time limit. Which means almost always, in the, I think, uh, that it's not possible for an adoptee to do that because you don't realize these these things when you're a child, and when you're about twenty, it's too late because usually there's a time limit of let's say twenty years. But the Dutch government lifted this time limit, which means that there are adoptees, Dutch adoptees now, who have filed complaints to the police. Uh, when it comes to agencies that uh, and these they know that their adoptions were basically legal and uh, and they will probably win in court or get some kind of uh, uh, compensation good good this is this is progress um, yeah i remember uh, david smolin's work on yeah is is international adoption does it fall within the the various human rights definitions of trafficking and he sort of says yes and sort of says maybe. I think he was really saying yes, it does. If you look at the definitions, the impacts, um, and I guess we'll see now, hopefully a bit of a bit of redress. Um, I have, I think, in my mind, sort of run out of questions. Other than if anyone had thoughts on the current situation in Ukraine with Russia forcibly transferring. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's um, uh, good to remind the listeners that. The, the 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 reason why uh, Russia's president Putin is uh, nowadays um, there's, there's basically a warrant for him, right? Uh, because he's a, uh, he has uh, committed crimes against humanity, uh, and it's about war crimes. Is about the children. Uh, it's not about what happens to the soldiers on the battlefields, although that's really bad as well. It's not about the the civilians in the cities that are bombed by Russia. It's about the adopted, abducted children, the thousands of abducted children. That's the, the sole reason for this warrant. Um, so this is really the heart of uh, uh, how, um, especially international adoption was born in the first place, because uh, it, it, it was born in, in, in Korea, right? And also partly in Greece, uh, uh, basically after the Second World War. Uh, uh, where uh, children were basically abducted uh, by uh, various actors, right? Um, so there's a very uh, um, perverse or yeah, or, uh, even <laughs> evil <laughs> kind of reference back in 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 to history, I think, and the, the birth of international adoption in this case. And there are also other aspects, I think, uh, that. that uh, others historians have reminded uh, uh, us about the abducted children uh, that uh, Nazi Germany uh, took from Eastern Europe. Children that were basically Slavic children, but they looked Germanic, right? So they, they were abducted by the Germans and adopted to Germans, and there are thousands of them. And there's uh, a repercussion which is related to law here, because when the, 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 the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, was written. Poland uh, was one of the the signatures and also a member of the UN, of course, at that time, uh, a communist country. Uh, 
which was still very much aware of the fact that a lot of these abducted children were Polish children. Probably the majority of them were Polish children. So uh, this is what I've heard from histories, uh, historians working within the history of law, that the, the kind of what some people feel is a kind of an ado anti-adoption stance in the UN Convention of Children's the Rights of the Children or chi of the Child uh, stems actually from this Polish contribution and this uh, um, uh, memory of the abducted children who were forcibly adopted by Germans during the, the, the Nazi regime. It's interesting to imagine adoption as a war crime. I've had conversations with people saying, you know, adoption, war crime, and they, they're, they're taken aback very slightly. But I say, well, look as what, at what's happening. And as you say, it's not new. The Ukraine situation, Argentina, a very useful tactic, you know, with the abuelas and having grandchildren who may not have, I'm thinking reparations, if the adopted children, grandchildren, whatever, if they didn't know they were adopted, you find out maybe never or maybe 20 years later. How do you begin to have reparations apart from maybe DNA? But it just, it continues on. Um, interesting times, a difficult one to try and come. And I just wonder how they're going to, will there be prosecution and how will the redress work? Are they going to go into the remote areas and track down children? Will the best interests argument be used? Will they say, oh, well, now these children have been 10 years with these other parents. It would be cruel to move them. Because we've seen that argument elsewhere. I guess that sort of concludes part one. There is a part two, um, or section two to this one, with different speakers um, who will take a slightly opposing view that identity may be a social construct, that we're more than our genetics, etc. Um, so it will be interesting to, you know, to to hear that, and then I guess it'll maybe spark spark dialogue. We can maybe blog back and forth with that. Um, but thank you very much. And yeah, look forward to the papers will be recorded, I guess, and online as well as the week Zoom. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alice. Thank you.